Okay. Well, uh, good morning to all of you, and uh, it's good to be back again, and uh, good to hear your voices this morning, and I'm glad that uh, most of us are well. I mean, for those of you who are not well, we'll continue to pray for one another and encourage one another in their faith in these very difficult times. Okay, we're going to continue with our study this morning um, with the, from the Book of Kings. Uh, if you remember, in our last two sermons, that we have seen how that the, the Lord has finally dealt with every single person that was related to the house of uh, King Ahab, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that evil household uh, that, that culminated with the execution of this unlawful queen, uh, Atalia, who, who, who usurped the throne and sat on the, uh, on, on the throne of David uh, in, in the kingdom of Judah. And uh, we know that Atalia was the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel. So uh, we've heard that uh, that actually ended the, 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 the entire household of Ahab. Uh, that was actually uh, being prophesied by Elijah the prophet um, you know, decades before. So this morning, what, 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 I, what I'd like to do is basically for us to turn our attention to the, the chief character, the chief person who was responsible for the destruction of uh, Ahab's house. And his name is Jehu, or Jehu, how, no matter how, however you want to pronounce it, J-E-H-U, Jehu. So uh, Jehu was actually uh, one of uh, King Jehoram's, uh, King, that was King Jehoram of Israel, uh, his his uh, his uh, able military commander. So this was a, he was a professional soldier, and we know uh, from our previous lessons that uh, Jehu was uh, has has been anointed uh, by Elisha the prophet as the next king of Israel uh, when when he was serving under King Jehoram. Uh, we also know that when Jehu uh, was appointed, his his anointing his anointing was actually done in secret, uh, and when when he's, he was anoint, anointed in secret to be the next king of Israel. Uh, along with the commission by God to destroy Ahab's house, that uh, we, we have seen how Jehu actually has gone about doing what the Lord has commanded him to do. You know, that we have seen that how he has met up with Jehoram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, at Jezreel. If you remember that uh, Ahaziah went to visit uh, Jehoram, and Jehoram was uh, recovering from his injuries uh, that he sustained uh, during the battle at Ram of Gilead. Uh, so, uh, so he, he so that uh, uh, so he he was resting there. Ahaziah went to visit him, and Jehu went and met these two kings. And in the end, that uh, he executed both of them because both of them belonged to the uh, the house of Ahab. And we we also remember that how Jehu then continued to execute all the members of uh, Ahab's house. Uh, you know, all 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 the all the male uh, male members of of Ahab's house, including Ahab's in-laws side as well in, in, in from the kingdom of Judah. Uh, those who were actually connected to the house of Ahab until there were no more survivors left, uh, either from Ahab's house directly or indirectly, as well as his supporters. So Jehu, as we have seen, uh, seemed to be a man who was a who was zealous for the Lord. You know that he was performing the Lord's uh, command very faithfully to deal with Ahab's house, and he he has even. Uh, you know that uh, destroyed uh, the entire system, uh, worship system of Baal and its supporters in Israel. So, we were thought that having looked at this man, that we were thought that well, after about 150 years of reign under nine evil kings in the in the northern kingdom of Israel, perhaps that the dawn of a new era may have begun under Jehu, the new king of Israel, this zealous and obedient king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what we're going to do today is we're going to continue where the writer has left off for us concerning Jehu and let's see how he has done as king of Israel from 2 Kings chapter 10 uh, verse tw- verses 28 to 31. Uh, I, I posted the notes uh, this morning as well, the amended notes, which slight amendment basically. So I, I hope that you have got the notes to follow the passages there. 2 Kings 10 uh, verse 28, it says, Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, the golden cows that were at battle and then. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who made Israel sin. So the writer now, having completed his report on Jehu's successful actions you know, in destroying Ahab's house and Baal from Israel, now the writer tells us of his disappointment with Jehu because he 
was like the other kings. He, has, he hasn't done very well, spiritually speaking. And he was not much of a difference uh, from the other kings of Israel before him. The reason was because, as the writer tells us, that Jehu decided to follow after uh, Jeroboam, King Jeroboam's tradition of the calf's worship. But in spite of his evil, uh, the, the Lord commanded Jehu, as we have seen here, for fulfilling his will in the destruction of Ahab's house and Baal. And the Lord has even granted Jehu's house to reign in Israel up to, four, up to the fourth generation. The Lord's generous grant here actually reminds us actually of Moses' law, if you remember. In Moses' law, uh, in, his, in the Lord's preamble, that the introduction to Moses' law, which we have studied previously in our Bible classes, on, on, the, on, the, on the point of singing, that was in Exodus 34. Uh, Exodus 34 verses 5 down to 7, where in the preamble to Moses' law, the Lord said this, that the scripture said this, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercies, mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So you can see the fourth generation being referred to in Moses' law here. That here was basically that where God has actually declared his or proclaimed his mercy and his grace uh, and long-suffering and goodness and truth towards, uh, towards Israel. While he, he would not overlook the, the guilt and evil and sin of those who would continue in them. But the, here the, the, the Lord said that he would give time and to those who have sinned to change and turn around even as far as the third or the fourth generation so this shows basically that the graciousness of god uh, you know uh, to israel and when it was spoken of the fourth gen four generations of kings for jehu's from jehu's house it also shows that in spite of his disobedience as king of israel the lord had actually granted jehu and his sons time to change for the better so the, the, the writer continues that in 2 Kings 10, verses, verse 32 and 33, where the, where the writer tells us here, 2 Kings 10, 32, In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazel conquered them in all the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Ruben, and Manasseh, and from Eroa, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. So here the writer continues by informing us, uh, uh, you know, it's because of uh, Jehu's lack of spiritual progress in his faith. So the Lord decided to chastise him by causing Hazael, the king of Syria, to attack and conquer the three tribes of Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you, if you have on, on the map itself, you can see basically that the, the river Jordan runs in the middle in the map. And on the eastern side itself, you will see these uh, stripes, uh, markers in stripes uh, on, on, on the map, uh, you know, in the area of Gilead. Uh, that was the area uh, where Hazel has actually uh, you know, occup uh, invaded and conquered. When you compare the size of that area with the northern kingdom of Israel, which starts from battle all the way up to Hazel and Dan further up there, you can see it's about half the size of the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, this, this was such a huge uh, you know, uh, conquest by the Syrians. Uh, in, 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 the, in the region occupied by Israel. So, the Syrian king was, was called Hazel. Concerning Hazel, the king of Syria, uh, we, we know from Elisha's prophecies before, prophecy before that Elisha said that Hazel was going to be a very cruel king when he you know, invaded Israel. That was actually in 2 Kings 8, verse, verses 12 and 13. The scripture says, And Hazel said, why is my Lord weeping? That was talking about to Elisha. He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with a sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with children. So Hazel said, What is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. So we, we, we remember this passage basically that, that some time ago when, when, we preached about, when I preached about Elisha there. So here Elisha foreknew through the Spirit of God that when Hazel, the one day that when Hazel became king of Israel and attacked Israel, he would be very cruel 
you know, he will commit all sorts of atrocities against God's people in the north. So now in Jehu's time, where Jehu was king of Israel, now we find Elisha's prophecy coming to pass, you know, with Hazel's conquest on, of the eastern cities of Israel. But it seems, what was interesting was this, that, you know, that uh, it seems that after taking all the eastern territories of Israel, Hazel seemed to have stopped his conquest, and he did not cross over the Jordan to the, to the western side to take on the western cities in Jehu's days. So as I was reading this, I also wondered, why did Hazel stop, stop there? You know, that he, 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 he could have gone across the river and continued the conquest, knowing that now Israel was, you know, uh, militarily and politically weak. But why did he stop? Uh, we, ha we have actually uh, outside information from out of the Bible that perhaps might give us a hint as to why that Hazel has stopped. This, 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 this was called the... the, uh, the the, the monument was known as the Black Obelisk, uh, which is actually sitting in the in the British Museum in London. I've 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 seen it several times when I when I visited the museum many many years back, and uh, it's a very interesting stone. That we, I mentioned this before in one of my Elijah sermons. Before you have you may, you may have seen this image uh, some time ago before. So the Black Obelisk was basically a record of the the uh, the achievements of King Shalmaneser the Third, who was the king of Assyria at that time. And uh, you know, on this piece of monument was very interesting that uh, there was the recording of uh, a king, which this monument identified as the king of Israel and named him as Jehu, the son of Omri. Of course, the Jehu wasn't the son of Omri. Uh, the Jehu, uh, perhaps that because we know Omri was was actually the father of King Ahab, so that uh, that was from the Ahab dynasty. Perhaps that the the whoever carved this analyst here, uh, you know, that uh, may have mistaken. That any kings that came from Israel uh, came from the house of Omri, uh, who was uh, who was a mighty king at the time. So uh, that's why they call him Jehu, the son of Omri. But we know Jehu Jehu was at the time. So on this monument, you can see basically that uh, there, there was the figure which was described as Jehu, actually bowing down before the uh, king Shalmaneser the third, uh, the king of Assyria, with a trail of gifts that he, he has brought along uh, to, uh, to 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 present to the Assyrian king. So uh, if this record is of the Black Obelisk is accurate history, which, which I submit that it is, then this might explain as to why the Jehu was actually offering this gift to Shalmaneser III. Probably, probably, perhaps, that he was trying to, you know, uh, buy the favor of the Assyrians. The Assyrians at the time was the rising military power uh, from the north. You know, that uh, if he became a friend of the Assyrians, who was the rising military power of his days, Perhaps that, that might, you know, frighten off the Syrians and cause the Syrians to stop. So we, we, we've seen from the Bible basically that, uh, you know, Hazel conquered all the eastern cities of Israel and he stopped his invasion from there and he didn't continue until after Jehu died. You see? And that, that was where that we, the, the Bible describes to us what Elisha the prophet said years ago of, of Hazel being cruel and oppressive when he when he conquered Israel, you see, uh, or, the, or or when he when he when he became the in the sense of uh, you know conqueror of Israel, and this this cruelty and atrocities can be seen from Second Kings thirteen. Uh, this was during the reign of Jehu's son. This happened after Jehu was dead. So Je when Jehu's son Jehoahaz uh, sat on the throne. So the scripture says in Second Kings thirteen, uh, verse verses three to five says this. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into, into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of ben the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave, them, gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. So here actually it describes uh, Hazel's occupation in Israel later on after jo Jehu's death that his occupation was a very oppressive one. You know, the people suffered uh, uh, you know, uh, at the hands of Hazel a uh, reign of terror even to the point of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu later on had to plead with the Lord for help, turn to God for help. So when the Syrians took over the eastern cities of Israel during the days of King Jehu, which was about half of his kingdom, 
we would have thought that Jay would be awakened and shocked by the Lord, you know, and change and repent and change for the better. But the writer in, of the Kings did not actually indicate any change from, from Jehu because we know that uh, in Second Kings 10, as the text continues, in verses 34 to 36, where the scripture says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers and buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz his son reigned in his place. And the period of Jehu's reign that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So from here we can see that all the writer tells us is that Jehu reigned 28 years. 28 years was actually the second longest period of reign amongst all the kings of Israel. And it's, the writer seems to imply to us that Jehu's reign of 28 years had been a wasted one because that he had 28 years to turn back to God which he failed to do so, and as a result, that died in his sin. So even the Syrian incursion and conquest did not wake him up. Very sad, you know, it's very sad. So what, but I mean, I've got some thoughts, you know, about Jehu uh, that I'd like to share with you today. Now, since the days of the division of Dave, King David's house, if we remember going back to the, those early days in my sermon on, 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 on the kingdom of Israel, when, when David's house was divided, you know, into the north and the south because of Rehoboam, his grandson's uh, foolishness. That, that started with King Jeroboam, the northern king, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, of which Jehu was, was king uh, in Israel. So since the day of King Jeroboam, none of the kings in the north has ever obeyed the Lord or done what the Lord has commanded them as zealously as Jehu. So Jehu's example was unprecedented. So Jehu was actually the first of Israel's kings to be so zealous in doing the Lord's will and that he did not even procrastinate or delay in doing what God told him to do. He was also very thorough in his work for the Lord, you know, in the execution of Ahab's house. He has even gone to the point of destroying Baal and execute, executed all his priests and followers and destroyed the temple even of Baal. But the downside of Jehu was that instead of leading Israel back to the Lord, whom he was serving at the time, and who has actually granted him the privilege of becoming Israel's king, he reinstated the worship of the calves erected by King Jeroboam. That was in 2 Kings 10.29, we have seen that passage. In spite of his sin of idolatry, which the Lord should have punished him immediately, the Lord actually commanded Jehu for his zeal and obedience and promised him, you know, the throne of Israel would be secured in his, for his house for four generations. We have seen that in 2 Kings 10.30. Have, have, have you ever wondered why that God had, has, has com commanded Jehu, even though he has continued to worship idols? Why did God praise him, even though he, he, you know, he, he was an idolater? We, this is where we need to bear in mind several facts concerning the background material pertaining to Jehu. First of all, that Jehu was a soldier from the northern kingdom of Israel. We know 150 years that Israel had never worshipped God, the Lord God, in, in, in the proper way. So, coming from this sort of, you know, a society, as you would call it, that knew nothing but idolatry and Baal, it would be reasonable, isn't it, for God to you know, not, not to expect Jehu to be so quickly enlightened and worship the Lord so quickly. It would take time for him to, uh, as they say, that unload the baggages of the past. You know, we all come to Christ with baggages of the past. You know, so sometimes it takes us some time and years even to, to get rid of some of these thinking uh, and, and baggages. So I think that this is, it seems that the, the, the reason that God has given the throne to, to Jehu and who is household for four generations was perhaps God's way of saying to Jehu, I'm, I'm going to be patient with you. Yeah? You have done well. I'm going to be patient with you. And I'm prepared to be merciful and gracious. I will give you time and your son's time to learn what it means to live a holy life before me. I think that, that was perhaps the, the reason. And the, the Lord's reasons, uh, you know, the Lord's patience and mercy and grace towards Jehu can also be seen. Uh, by the fact that he has reigned 28 years. So God has granted 28 years of reign so that he could, you know, uh, eventually 
undo uh, or unload his uh, his all these kind of evil packages or baggages and follow God. But sadly, Jehu did not grasp this opportunity to learn from the lessons of history, especially from the household of Ahab, uh, where he was the main player in, it, in destroying the house. But instead, that he what he did was basically, that he, as the kings tells us, that Jehu did not take heed to the to the to, to the word of God and continued to walk after the sins of Jeroboam. Of course, apart from being an idolater and a soldier, uh, Jehu was also a very practical man, as in practical in open inverted commas. Uh, you know that when you, when we see Israel's old enemy Syria uh, under Hazel attacking and occupying uh, Israeli territory on the eastern side of the River Jordan, we we see. Je that Jehu's response to that, that as we have seen uh, from the Black Oblisk record on, on that stone uh, in the British Museum, that he turned to the Assyrians for help instead of turning to, to the Lord. Why did he do that? Perhaps that he might be thinking that, well, uh, yes, the God of Elisha, who anointed him as the King of Israel, was a great God. I think that the, the God of Elisha was only able to deal with weaker opponents, perhaps like Ahab's house. Like, you know, he anointed me to do that. I've done that. Maybe that was as far as the ability of the, of the God of uh, Elisha could do. But not with somebody as powerful as the Syrians under King Hazel. You need somebody bigger than the God of Elisha to deal with it, which was the Assyrians. Maybe that was his thinking. And that's why that he could not rely on the God of Elisha. In spite of, you know, that having heard all the powerful miracles that from at the hands of Elijah and Elijah in, 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 in the further past, even Elijah against the Syrians, uh, you know that we, we have seen the, the story of Elijah so how uh, Elijah was able to deal with the Syrians uh, in, you know, in, in their attempts to invade Israel perhaps that Jehu must be thinking that, yes, all these were very fascinating legends and stories coming from the prophet Elijah, but this are all history, it's the past you know, this past, the past cannot deal with the present. So now, with the Syrians breathing down his neck on, from the eastern side of the Jordan, perhaps that Jehovah might be thinking that, well, faith in the Lord is not really practical. Don't tell me that uh, to believe in God and trust God in this. It's better to believe in yourself and follow your heart. I think perhaps this is what that has gone into the mind of Jehu. And hence, that we, we find him in the Black Oblates in the British Museum, kowtowing and bowing to the rising power of Assyria to help him resolve this problem. But of course, the Bible history, as we will learn later, will tell us that this was a futile and pointless effort because the Assyrians would not be able to help him because the Syrians eventually would still continue with their military advancement uh, you know, and occupy and oppress Israel after you know after Jehu's death. We have seen before, and the Assyrians did nothing to help. Okay, that is very interesting. Why did the Assyrians not help Israel, and you know allow Hazel and his son Benhadad later on to 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 continue with their advancement into Israel? We might wonder, you know, why that uh, Jehu's backup plan with the Assyrians didn't work. Uh, as I was reading this text, I was just thinking about this. Perhaps the answer, the answer can be found from our previous sermons before, even in our Bible class in the midweek study, if you remember some time ago, that the answer would come from the southern kingdom of Judah. We will remember, isn't it, uh, that when Atalia usurped the throne, sat on the throne for six years, uh, you know, and killed all the heirs to the throne, there was one survivor. You remember Joash, little baby Joash. And we, we remember that basically that, uh, you know, that on the, in the seventh year from our last sermon on Natalia, in the seventh year of, uh, in the seventh year of, uh, uh, you know, uh, and this was where that uh, Jehoiada, the high priest, remember that Jehoshiba, the, 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 you know, the daughter of Jehoram, uh, king of Israel, took, took the baby Joash and hid him in the temple with her husband, the high priest Jehoiada. You, you might remember that story itself the young successor to David's throne. So by this time, uh, that Jehoi, jo, Joash rather, was about you know, a seven-year-old boy. You remember basically that, uh, I, I did mention before that Jehoiada kept this 
young child for seven years, hidden away from Queen Italia, because that if Italia found out that her grandson was still alive, that she would kill him, uh, you know, to prevent uh, any successors to the throne from coming from the house, uh, you know, the house of David even, or even from the house of Jehoram himself. So, in the seventh year, the Bible tells us that Jehoiada, the high priest, decided to reveal the presence of the successor to the throne. And we have seen from the previous sermon, this could be due to Joe, the prophet Joe, is in a Joe's re rebuke and warning to Judah. If you remember, the basically that Joe's in the book of Joe, in, in in the Old Testament, the minor prophet. In his warning, he did mention something about that if to the priest that if the people of Judah did not do something and do it right, there will be a foreign intervention in Judah. You know, the day of the Lord will come. Uh, you know, as, as Joe was saying. If you don't do something about this, you priests who serve at the altar, you know that this day of the Lord will come and there will be foreign intervention. And this perhaps was the, the warning that prompted Jehoiada, the high priest, to actually get off his chair and took the young seven-year-old boy and revealed him to the people of Judah and put him on the throne of Judah. And my guess is this, that as a result of what Jehoiada has done, which was the right thing as the Lord expected him to do, which was to raise Joash, young Joash, to become the king of Judah and, and execute Italia. So the Lord has actually relented in bringing this foreign intervention into Judah. We know that there were two foreign interventions, one real and one potential. The real one was the Syrians under Hazel, which has already occupied Israel northern uh, on, on the eastern side the other one was the rising power of Assyria coming straight from the north on the western side of the river Jordan so since that Jehoiada has done what the Lord has told him to do by putting young Joash on the throne of David so this may have caused the Lord to actually stop the Assyrians from advancing into Israel and later on, perhaps even Judah. So I think this was this was the reason why that uh, you know that this the Assyrians stopped the 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 advancement. That then that caused the Syrians to realize that well, the Assyrians are not coming. So it looks like they are not really friends with jo Jehu. And now we can carry on with our conquest of Israel. And hence that they cross over and they cause problems in the reign during the reign of Jehu's son Jehoahash. You know, I think that that was what happened there. You know, that's why that and that that brings into fulfillment of what Elisha the prophet has said concerning Hazel that he was going to be a cruel, uh, you know, conqueror. That he was going to kill the young man with the sword and rip open the pregnant women with their babies and commit a lot of atrocities, which we will see later on in our sermon under the reign of King Jehoahash, uh, king of Israel. So you see, we can see how God works, you know, that how He orchestrated the, you know, by His providence, uh, things that all the events that He could actually bring them like an orchestra, and that you know all the pieces, the individual instruments playing in harmony one another, uh, and thus fulfilling His will. So we we see that happening. This is really wonderful stuff, you know, when you when you read the Old Testament and you see how the pieces fall in together. We also along with the support of biblical history in archaeology, so we've seen it. Uh, you know, it's, it's just exciting. I don't know about you, but I'm like so excited. Uh, you know, when I when I studying this, when I was studying this itself. So with this, with this, uh, you know, uh, Jehu kowtowing to the Assyrians that stopped the Syr the Syrian uh, advancement for the time being, uh, and then Jehu continued to reign in, in Israel until his time was up and he died and was buried, followed by the accession to the tr accession to the throne by his son. Jehoahaz, which will be the subject of our further studies later on. So, what can we learn? What can we learn from uh, the life of Jehu? Well, quite frankly, I think that one of the lessons I have learned in my preparation to speak on this character called Jehu, king of Israel. In fact, I have not. I'm not. This is not the first time I preach on Jehu, because I I I preached on Jehu. Uh, I think it was several times before in 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 the in in those years in the past. But each time, the one thing that I, I, I've, you know, that one thing I've noticed for myself is in, in my preaching career, as far as Jehu was concerned here, is that every time when I look at this man and study his character, my views of him have keeps changing. 
You know that initially that the, in the early year, years of my preaching, when I preached on Jehu, I, I took this very skeptical position of him. I was very skeptical of him. That was in the past. But having thought through again of what I, what, what I preached before and studied the text even further as I prepared this sermon, now I've changed my view of, instead of being skeptical, I'm actually quite sympathetic towards him. I think this is why the Bible says that you know, the, 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 the Word of God is living. Uh, you know, it's very fluid and it's living. So you, you get to learn something new uh, each time when you look at the Word of God. Even it's the same passages you read over and over again, you find that every time you learn something new. Uh, and I think that this is where that makes Bible study is very, very exciting. Which uh, That's why you can hear from my, my voice that I am excited about it, basically. So when we read of Jehu and his life, the man who was going to and became the king of Israel, uh, this is a very unusual man, you know, an unusual king as far as the history of the Northern Kingdom of Israel is concerned. Because that here is a man who was actually zealous in obeying the Lord's words to him. And when, when we read of, especially when we read of his rebuke, how he rebuked Jehoram king of Israel in 2 Kings 9.22, uh, you, 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 you can see that, yes, Jehu was right on the dollar about, uh, you know, Jehoram's... Uh, mentality and his adoption of his mother Jezebel's uh, immoral worship of Baal in Israel. If you, you, you see what Jehu said to Jehoram in 2 Kings 9.22, it says this, Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? So we find Jehu's condemnation of Jezebel's idolatries and evil works. Uh, seemed to show that he understood something about the God of Elisha. You know, that the God of Elisha was very different from Israel's false gods. And also that the God of Elisha was really dead against uh, Ahab's house because of the evil ways and Baal worship, which he saw that must be destroyed. You know, altogether in Israel, before there could be peace between Israel and God. I think he was right on, on that point, right on the dollar on that point. Well, this was indeed good news for Israel, especially you know, to have someone outside the circle of God's prophets in Israel showing such animosity you know, against uh, idolatry and, and Jehu's display of great zeal and faith for the Lord's work here actually was pretty good news, basically, we see here. Then, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we see in 2 Kings 10, 15 to, to 17 of how, how the jo Jehu expressed his zeal for the Lord. The scripture says 2 Kings 10, 15. Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right, as my heart is towards your heart? And Jehonadab said, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up into the chariot. Then he said, Look, notice what he said. He said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him right uh, in his chariot and and when he came to Samaria he killed all who remained in Ah to Ahab in Samaria till he destroyed them according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to Elijah so here you can see that Jehu's zeal has led him to do what the Lord said execute all everybody that was related to, to Ahab that included uh, Ahaziah king of Judah who was the son of Jehoram king of Judah and his wife Atalia Along with the forty-two brothers, perhaps the cousins and nephews, at this 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 was this at the the forty-two, uh, you know, the massacre of the forty-two chaps there was actually at Bath Acat. So those were the some of the uh, remaining members who were associated with Ahab's house. We've seen how he destroyed Baal and um, Baal's temple, you know, and all the priests and the followers there. You know that one thing that was amazing about what Jehu had done in Israel was basically this that his work. Of destruction of Baal and its worship and its people and its priests and followers, was to the extent as we know that he turned the temple of Baal into a uh, into a public toilet. <laughs> you know that was uh, from one of the previous sermons before. So since that day, of what Jehu had done to Baal, the worship of Baal would never rise from the ashes again. Its ugly head was never seen in Israel from here on. I think that was really amazing. You know what he has done. That when you read on for the next, uh, you know, all the way, all the kings to the end of the northern kingdom of Israel, you don't find mention of Baal anymore. This was amazing. 
You know that, and we can we have high hopes for Northern Kingdom of Israel with this man on the throne. But oddly enough, we somehow find that Jehu was not actually practicing what he preached to Jehoram about the you know the 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 the, the, the harlotries of his mother and the witchcraft and all the evil. Instead, the the king tells us that, well, Jehu may have destroyed, utterly destroyed Baal worship, but he switched from Baal's worship into the worship of Jeroboam's calves. This was like jumping from the pan into the fire, as they say. It was no different. Why did Jehu do this and not worship the Lord? So that was something that prompted me to, uh, you know, into my thinking as I was preparing the sermon. Some writers and commentators, you know, that takes the skeptical view which I had before of Jehu, they suggested that Jehu was zealous in doing what the Lord told him to do was because that Jehu knew that this was the only way that he, he would secure his political power in Israel. That is to destroy all the royal all the royal families. You know, and of course the those associated with him, including Baal, because Baal was closely associated with Jezebel, you know, from Phoenicia. So he, he has to get rid of them as well. So this view suggested that so once Jehu had done this, his thinking was that once I've secured my position on the throne, I'm going to abandon the God of Elisha and do what I like. Now this was what, uh, you know, that, uh, this, was, this was very similar to my original view of Jehu. But with further thinking and, and thoughts about this, I changed my mind. And that I, 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 I no longer, I'm no longer skeptical of, of Jehu, but sympathetic towards him, towards him for the following reasons. Let me give you my reasons. Number one, Jehu, as I've said before, he was a professional soldier. We know what soldiers are like. I mean, I'm sure that uh, so, soldiers, uh, veterans like, uh, you know, uh, Dave himself will, will understand this. You know, the sol- to, to the soldier, uh, when an order was given to him, a good soldier would do his utter best as what his superior or commander has ordered him to do. He would do it with all his heart and follow in the service of, of, his, of his country, you know, through the, through the orders of his commander. So, now Jehu was a soldier. The God of Elijah has anointed him as king and ordered him to do what, he's, what he needed to do. So being a soldier whose natural instinct was to obey orders without question. So it seems unlikely that Jehu was trying to patronize God you know, by pretending you know, that, okay, yeah, I'll do it, uh, while he was harboring some kind of ulterior intentions or motives in his heart, that thinking that, like what some of these writers suggested, well, I will do this, and then once my position is secured on the throne, I, I'm going to I'm going to leave this God of Elisha alone, and I'm going to do what I like. So, that it would be very unlikely for a soldier to think that way. Well, that's my first reason, and secondly, following from that first reason, the Bible has not actually indicated to us, you know, uh, in these passages, that Jehu had any ulterior motives for for his words or his actions. The Bible never suggested that he had any ulterior motives. You, you, we might remember that in the story of, uh, you know, the healing of Naaman, the the, the Syrian. Remember that Gehazi, the man, there was a man called Gehazi. He was actually Elisha's servant, who was with uh, with Elisha and Naaman when when uh, when uh, Naaman after Naaman was healed, didn't it? That Elisha actually healed Na- Naaman for free. Naaman had a lot of gifts for him, but. Elisha said, no, take it back, you know, it's free. So that if you remember that Gehazi, his servant, after shortly after Naaman left, he secretly went to, to Naaman to ask for some gifts isn't it, and money under the pretense that, uh, you know, that one of the sons of the prophets came needing some help, you know, so that he was asking for some money and, uh, and, uh, and a change of clothes, if you remember. That in, in that story, you, you remember, remember how that Gehazi had been exposed, you know, his 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 ulterior motive has been exposed, you know, and they're condemned for that. So if you think about this, if Jehu was like Gehazi, surely the Bible would have exposed him, somehow or another. But since the writer of the Kings has not said anything so strongly against Jehu, so as to imply that he had ulterior motives, we can only basically conclude that. Jehu's zeal and was real and sincere. I think that that was that was my conclusion of it. Also, to add on to this, comes to my third reason, is that 
when you look at it, the Lord actually commended Jehu for his zeal. The Lord never criticized him nor questioned his motives. And the Lord has rewarded him with the throne and down to the fourth generation. So this actually strongly suggests that Jehu was truly sincere in, in serving God. So these are my reasons why I've changed my views of Jehu from one being skeptical to one being <laughs> sympathetic towards him. He was a man, I believe now, that uh, to be truly sincere and zealous in his faith. But of course, uh, sadly, in spite of the Lord's credit uh, of Jehu and granting this you know, continued reign in his house for four generations, Jehu decided, still decided not to take heed to God's word and worship these golden calves of Jeroboam. And he turned the grace of God into the judgment of God later on. Perhaps the Lord grant of these four generations, uh, you know, we know that from, the, from Moses' law that the, three, the third or fourth generation uh, had to do with the sins and iniquities of the father and the children, for those who hate him, that was what Moses said. Perhaps the Lord has used this principle of four generations, uh, you know, with, with Jehu's house. But he, he, God, God would have foreknown that, well, Jehu is not going to be faithful. So I'm going to imply uh, to him that, well, four generations I'm given to you as an act of grace. But, you know, the warning is, if you're not going to be faithful, four generations, you'll be done for your house. Maybe that's what the Lord was thinking. Because the Lord knew that he was not going to be faithful. And hence the, but I will still be compassionate and patient with you and long-suffering with you and your house. Hope, well, I hope that you will change. Perhaps that was the Lord's thinking, as uh, stated in Second Kings 10.31. Okay, so we've seen that Jehu destroyed Baal and swapped over to the golden calves and worshipped the golden calves. So that prompted my question as to preparing the, 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 the sermon. What has caused him not to worship the Lord? Knowing that the God of Eli Elisha was the one who actually led him to this victory and set him on the throne. Why did he turn to Jeroboam's calves and worship them? You know that knowing that Jehu was a sincere and zealous man in his faith for the Lord. Why? Why? I think that... Um, Jehu's initial faith in the Lord when he first believed and, and trusted God and obeyed him may have been due to the fact that you know that the, 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 the anointing came from Elisha the prophet, you know, when he was anointed as the next king of Israel. Because Elisha the prophet was a was a well known prophet in Israel. If you remember the case of Naaman, even the small slave uh, Israeli girl who was captured to, um, and brought to Syria heard of Elisha the prophet. So Elisha was well known. His miracles his demonstration of the power of the Lord, the God of Israel, you know, was uh, was well known. So was Elijah, his, you know, his superior demonstration of God's power at Mount Carmel in the days of King Ahab would have been legendary throughout Israel. And this would have caused a lot of, and perhaps even Jehu to realize that, wow, so the God of Elijah anointed me. And I know that uh, their miracles prove that there is a God in Israel and he is the Lord God. And Elijah and Elisha were his prophets. So now, you know that uh, I have been anointed as king by one of his, one of God's prophets. I can believe what he said. I think maybe that was the initial uh, spark that started the faith of uh, of Jehu in the Lord God of Israel as the one true God. But his reintroduction of the calf worship of Jeroboam perhaps may have suggested to us that although that Jehu believed that uh, the God of Elisha the God of Israel, perhaps he didn't really fully understand the nature and character of God. So I think this is where our, I, I have some, I get, I, I'm prepared to give Jehu the benefit of a doubt. Perhaps he may be thinking that, yes, Ahab's house and Baal religion were destroyed because the God of Elisha actually hated the sort of sexual immorality and child sacrifice uh, that Baal worship you know, uh, required. Remember that we talk about the cruelties of Baal worship and the sexual immorality taking place there. He may have also thought that uh, it was perhaps the more wholesome, innocent type of worship that the, the God of Elisha was after. You know, and the closest type of decent, as you call decent, uh, you know, worship that Jehu knew, well, was perhaps Jeroboam's calves in Israel. You see? 
in what ways was Jeroboam's calves worship uh, in Israel uh, in a sense innocent and wholesome? You you remember remember this, the, the the sermon on King Jeroboam very in, in the very beginning, when King Jeroboam after Israel the house of David split, the king of uh, kingdom David split into two, the north and the south. So the the, the, the the those in the north kept coming back to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God in, in the temple, and it was King Jeroboam who who actually uh, installed the golden calves in order to, to stop Israel from coming back to, to the south to worship lest that they turn back to God. So, but again, if you remember that uh, in order to persuade the northern kingdom people to stay put where they, where they were and not go down to Jerusalem, Jeroboam had to come up with something that may look no different from the worship in Jerusalem. And at the same time, it has to be convenient for, for the Israelites to, to worship. So that they don't, they did not have to go to 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 Jerusalem all the time. You see. So there, I think maybe that was where that was the basic premise that Jeroboam had actually uh, relied on when he installed the calves, one in battle in the south and one in Dan in the in the extreme north of the kingdom, uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. So again, as I've said, in order to persuade the people to do this to worship these calves, they had to look very similar to the worship system of the temple in Jerusalem. And we know that uh, Jeroboam was successful in persuading the people to do that. Perhaps they have seen that, well, yeah, after all, it's not much of a difference anyway. So, you know, uh, we don't have to travel all the way from, from the north to the south to worship uh, the Lord God in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And we, 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 we are bowing to the calves, uh, which are representative of the gods that brought us out of the land of Egypt, just like, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant in, in Jerusalem. So, well, they, they, yeah, it's all right. I mean, basically, it, it, it looks the same to, to us anyway. So God wouldn't mind to, uh, if we do that. So after all, it's convenient for us as well. But the Bible tells us that uh, there were differences. And the differences were, in, 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 in fact, very stark difference. They are not minor differences we are talking about, as Jehu would allege there. Or, or rather, Je Jehoram would allege there. Look at the priest. If you remember, the priest that Je Jeroboam actually uh, anointed to serve uh, the two calves uh, were not from the tribe of Levites. As we know, Moses' law requires the priest to be Levites. These priests came from the common people. Also, the altars that were at Bethel and Dan in Israel were not at Jerusalem. Also, that the feast days that were appointed uh, were not the same days as Moses' law. You know, the feast of the tabernacle the, the, uh, and all those feasts, the Passover, were all different dates and different days. And also that it was not before the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, but the calves that Israel were bowing down. So these were not minor differences, which Jeroboam may have persuaded Israel to accept. These are just minor differences, you know, but the Bible says no, they're not. They are major differences. So, although that their worships and, worship and service may look innocent and wholesome, you know, as far as the calf worship, worship is concerned, as compared to the, the sex parties, the wild sex party and the murdering of children type of Baal worship, uh, which has been taking place in Israel, we know that, uh, I mean, that, uh, you know, those were immoral and, you know, that, that that's what perhaps the Jehu was thinking. Yeah, that was the immorality that God didn't like, you know. Uh, but the wholesome type, like the worship of the calves, uh, God preferred that. So, well, I'm sure that he doesn't mind us doing that uh, instead of going uh, going down to Jerusalem to worship. Well, that, that should be fine. After all, the differences are very minor, as you would say. But still, from the eyes of God, that was still idolatry. It makes no difference. It's, it's no, no difference. But in spite of that itself, the, the people and now Jehu himself have accepted this as an acceptable form of worship of the God of Elijah before them. Well, you might say that, Sonny, wait a minute. This is really unbelievable. I, I, can't, I, I, I can't accept the fact that a Jehu would think like that. Hey, brethren. But when we look around today, in the religion of what they call Christendom. Do we not also see the same type of mentality like Jehu? Where some people say that one church is as good as another. Or they might, uh, there are some people who say that, well, after all, we are worshipping the same God, but done differently. The differences are very, very minor. So what's the problem? All denominations lead to God, after all. We all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. This, these are some of the modern mentalities we see. I'm sure that um, you know, some of us may have encountered such people around. So since we can believe that such mindset actually exists today in, in, the, in the world of Christendom, why is it then not possible for Jehu to believe that way? Even he was a sincere man, you know, who would, who would adopt such a mindset. What, why, why, why can't we, we accept that? I mean, I can. I come to realize it, you know, that that's what, that's what uh, perhaps Jehu was thinking in his mind. Well, brethren, religious people, you know, even including many brethren today, uh, there, there are many brethren today who see no issue with denominationalism even. As I've said before, because well, this, as they call in, in brackets, uh, Christians, they, they also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, you know, and they go to church. Well, the, the, the doctrines might be different, but these differences are very minor issues. You see, that's how that, uh, many brethren seem to think as well today, especially in the liberal camp. But even such very minor differences matter to the Lord. Why? Because, why? because any form of deviation uh, from what the Lord's words has said would be transgression of His law and thus sinful. To God, it's sinful if it's not in accordance with His word. Minor or, or not minor differences, they are sinful. I think this is where Jehu's failure was. He may be a sincere and zealous person, a man for, for the Lord. His, but his sincerity and zeal was not actually based on the correct understanding of the faith in the Lord. Even in the New Testament days, the Apostle Paul, he recognized this type of Jehu mentality of, in Israel, in his days even. You know, in the book of Romans, in Romans 10, and verses 1 to 3, Paul writes that he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they, might be, they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So here you are, brethren. Paul said, you know, of the Jews in his days, he said, well, the Jews are very zealous for the Lord and His law. There was no doubt about that because he was one of them. And they were worshipping the God of Israel they were worshiping the God of Israel, just like the Christians believe in the God of the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But of course, there was a different system in worship. But the Jews have failed to understand the will of the Lord concerning the Messiah, the Messiah Jesus Christ, and that's why they persecuted the church. Jesus also reflected this point uh, to his disciples in the Last Supper in John sixteen, uh, verses one to three, where the Lord said to his disciples, He said, "These things I have spoken to you." that you should not be made to stumble. They, that's talking about Jews, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you think, will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Even Jesus himself recognized this point about the Jews' misplaced zeal for the Lord and warned the disciples that, you know, that such misplaced zeal was because of the misunderstanding of who God is and what His will was pertaining to the Messiah. You see? So it wasn't just Jehu. Even the Jews of the days of Jesus and of Paul had the same kind of Jehu mentality. And today we have brethren like that as well. You know, yes, we do. There are brethren who advocate for change in God's worship in the Bible doctrine and to embrace into the fellowship, in brackets, Christians, from any denomination. And they say, well, this is just as good. Why? Because if we do so, so they say, we will be fulfilling the Lord's prayer in John 17 for the unity of all, his, of, of all believers. And by their definition, believers included denominational religious people. So after all that, that they say that, well, we all share the same belief in the sonship of Jesus, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Those are the major doctrines that we, we agree on. So the other differences between the Church of Christ and the denomination churches are only very minor. It's just a way of doing things are different. God wouldn't mind that, so they say. Well, in, in the last 15 years, uh, there, there emerged another group within the Lord's Church, which, which they call the Neo-Conservatives. It means the Neo-Conservatives. 
you know, the neoconservatives are brethren who actually hail themselves as sound and conservative in the in in in, in the faith, in the, amongst the churches of Christ. But the difference is that they see no issue, you know, of of some brethren fellowshipping with those who are on the liberal side. You see, coming from the conservative conservative side, fellowshipping the liberals. So these neoconservatives believe and teach the same doctrine as we do over here at the point. They oppose the same uh, false teachings as we do. Yeah, they, they, they don't believe that uh, the use of instrumental music in praise and, and, and worship of God uh, you know, is, is, uh, is authorized. They don't believe that salvation is by faith alone. They believe that baptism is essential for salvation and, and so on and so forth. By the doctrine, they believe that. Yes, but they do not believe that, uh, well, if, uh, if, if a conservative brethren were to go to fellowship the liberals, that it was wrong. They don't believe that. Is it? Because why? That nowadays, I've come across brethren from the conservatives saying that, well, uh, that is for them to decide who they fellowship with because this is the autonomy of the church. We must not cross that line. We must mind our own business. You know, we are not the ch the, the brotherhood's policemen to police every, every 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 church in who they fellowship with. You know, but we are happy to fellowship these people who fellowship the liberals. As long as these liberals do not come to us, we won't fellowship them. But what they what these other conservative brethren do with their in their fellowship is none of our business. So that is the kind of thinking that we find today in the brotherhood, sadly, amongst the neoconservatives. And so they say, God doesn't mind that. You know, because fellowship is has been defined differently, and God doesn't mind that because this is a minor issue, so they say. But we do know from the Bible, that especially when it comes to issue of fellowship, fellowship is a major issue. Why? Because the very essence of the teachings of Christianity is about man's fellowship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ came and died and rose again from the dead. Why? So that sinners like you and I can be in fellowship with God. God sees fellowship as a major issue, which these liberals and now the neoconservatives are trying to downgrade it. And thinking, I'm sure that they, 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 they do so with a lot of sincerity in their hearts. I don't think that they did it deliberately, but with sincerity. Without really realizing and understanding that, well, God does mind who we fellowship with. So these are some of the modern Jehus we find within the Lord's Church. Downgrading fellowship issues, turning into a very something very minor, is something that uh, is none of our business, what the other churches do. But we can fellowship them as long as we believe the same doctrine. They want to practice it differently. Uh, that is for them to decide, not us. These are the misguided beliefs like Jehu that we find today. And these are dangerous uh, characters within the Lord's Church. You know, it, it, They are more dangerous than the liberals because the liberals, we know exactly what they think. The neoconservatives are the ones that are, it's very hard to spot if we are not careful with it. So we, we need to be very, 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 very uh, you know, uh, careful with this uh, and not to fall into this mindset, uh, thinking, oh, the Lord doesn't mind. And Jehu's story tells us otherwise. The Lord warns us. I'm going to come to an end very shortly. The Lord warns us about the danger of such misguided mentality. Uh, in Matthew 7, which I would say that uh, perhaps is one of the saddest passages in the New Testament or in the Bible itself. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. The Lord said this. He said that, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many great, many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus warned us that there are going to be many religious people. Religious, but with a misguided zeal and sincerity for Him. Many religious people who, would, who have made great sacrifices for, sacrifice for Jesus you know, in, in their lives, who will be pleading with Him to accept and acknowledge them which Jesus said sadly that they will be turned away in spite of their sincerity and zeal which are misguided. I think that the Lord's word in Luke 6, 46 is even more blunt than what Matthew 7 tells us. In Luke 6, 46, uh, in a very similar setting there, Jesus said this, 
concerning those who will call him Lord, Lord. And Jesus said in verse 46 of Luke 6, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I, I, which I say? I think those, that will be the most striking question for every person, especially for those who are mis, religiously misguided people. Jesus tells us here that he will only accept those who, are, who will obey him, not just for, by for simply say, calling him Lord, Lord, while ignoring his will. Jehu was such a man, very sad. That's why I have great sympathy for him. You know, and Jesus said, well, and Jesus not only said this, uh, Jesus also said that those whom he will acknowledge will be his brethren and family. Uh, but who are his brethren and family? In Matthew 12, verse 48 and 250, he tells us that. In Matthew 12, 48, the Lord said, but, Je but he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whatever or for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So once again, that we find that in these three passages, the Lord has in no uncertain terms tells us that those who obey him, he considered them family, who will be accepted in the last days, on the day of judgment itself. Not those who simply call him Lord, Lord, even though out of true sincerity and zeal, you know, but whilst ignoring what he said, those will not be accepted. And this is the reason why that, you know, that God and Jesus wants us as his servants to do our duty, which is to obey him first and then follow what he said with sincerity and zeal, not just blindly sincere and zealous you know, and, and, and thinking that God will accept us in the last day. No, it doesn't work like that. Jehu was zealous and obedient to the Lord's command, but to some degree as we see. And his failure was not to submit to the Lord all the way in accordance to his word, you see. And that's why that Jesus said, well, I expect total obedience. Don't just call me Lord, Lord, and do only partially what I say. If you call me Lord, you do what, everything I tell you to do. Jesus doesn't want our senseless zeal and sacrifices, which is what the religious world today, they are teaching. They are using sincerity and zeal as the benchmark of righteousness for salvation. But Jesus said, no, that is not the benchmark for righteousness and salvation. It is obedience to God's word. Where you do what God says out of sincerity and zeal, that is the benchmark, not misguided zeal and sincerity. So for Jehu, we, we see that it's very sad that he has actually reversed the order that Jesus talks about by first showing zeal and sincerity, but he wasn't totally obedient to the Lord. Jehu, as a matter of fact, he was the only king of the northern kingdom of Israel who was so near and yet so far from the Lord. You know, it is such a shame that he has chosen to discontinue uh, that passionate zeal that obeys God in the beginning, and he has gone down the route of this mistaken belief that God will still accept him for his sincerity without any fruits to prove obedience to his word, which he finally passed from this world, you know, having been so near and yet so far from the promise of heaven for him. So brethren, as I'm going to end here very shortly, on Judgment Day, the saddest group of people, you know, will not be those who have not known Christ or heard the gospel. This will not be the saddest group of people. It will be the Jehu type of people which will include many brethren, you know, who may have been religiously sincere and zealous for God all their lives, you know, believing that they, will be, they have been serving God faithfully while actually ignoring what the Bible actually bids them to do. For those who are brethren in this group, for me, I, I feel a sense of really sympathy and sadness for them. It's, it's because that they have been so privileged to be in the Lord's church. You're not talking about denominational churches, you're talking about the Lord's church where the truth is taught and yet that they have gone so far from God through apostasy with that sincere but misguided belief that even though if they would refuse to follow biblical teaching that God will still accept them and pass from this world to their horror that they will be turned away. So how can we be truly sincere towards God? The Bible tells us how. Paul in Philippians 1 verses 9 to 11 
gives us the litmus test of sincerity, which God accepts. God accepts this. Verse 9 says, or Philippians 1, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul tells us here, true sincerity is to know God and discern the truth from error and approve of that which is right and live by them. So this is the litmus test of biblical sincerity. You know God, you know the truth, you can see the difference between truth and error and you live by truth. This is how you show sincerity. Not the kind of uh, you know, mentality where you say, I'm sure that God will not mind. After all, I'm sincere about what I'm doing with Him. This is ignorant sincerity. Well, brethren, as I've said before earlier, why I've changed my views of Jehu from being one of being skeptical to the one of being sympathy. You know, this is because that there is nothing sadder in life and eternity than for one who will be turned away by the Lord on that day for being sincerely wrong about God and His words. So these are the people who have, out of true sincerity, given their lives to God under a misguided view of Him and yet fail to gain heaven after spending their lifetime believing that they would be there. I see Jehu as such a sad man. You know, and may God bless us and help us not to be like Jehu, but be a zealous people of God. Because we want to be obedient servants first and live our lives according to the truth and glorify His name before others. May we not end up being so near and yet so far like Jehu when we stand before Him that day. Thank you.